great quote I read this morning. You literary buffs, maybe you can tell me where this comes from. It says this, No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which one may be true. 1850, The Scarlet Letter by Hawthorne. Nobody likes to think of themselves as a hypocrite. Is that true? When we picture in our mind what a hypocrite looks like, something comes to your, to your mind right now. You picture it, right? Maybe you picture a self-righteous Pharisee wagging his bony finger at everybody around him, but failing to look in the mirror and see his own faults, to see his own sin, his own immoral choices. And what we do, what we tend to do is we think of hypocrites and we picture that stereotypical person and then we congratulate ourselves and say, at least I'm not like that. But what if our picture of hypocrisy is blurry? What if hypocrisy is much more subtle than we thought? much more deceptive than we imagine. Thomas Watson, who was a 17th century Puritan, once wrote this, A gracious soul labors to make the worst of his sins, but hypocrites make the best of them. They never deny that they're sinners, but they do what they can to lessen their sins. So hypocrites never claim to be perfect, they just claim that their sins aren't that bad. They minimize the significance of the wrongdoing through blame shifting. Oh, it's because of this or because of that or making excuses for why they do what they do. As Watson wrote, instead of having tears to lament their sin, they use arguments to defend it. So some questions before we dive into our text for this morning. Are you aware of any hypocrisy in your spiritual life? Are you confident that you are a good example to the unbelievers around you? Do you practice what you preach to them? Do you make the worst of your sins or do you try to make the best of them? Do you lament over your sins or do you try to defend them? Is God honored or is he mocked by your witness? Think about those questions and grab your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 2. There is nothing worse for a preacher than preaching on hypocrisy. Anybody that's ever filled a pulpit knows that the first application of any text is to yourself, and then even when you're convicted and you realize that you're a sinner, you still have to get up here and preach the text. And it's very challenging and very convicting, but we must do this. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. Now, before we dive into our verses for this morning, let's recap some of the important statements that Paul has made so far in chapter 2. Number one, he said this, if you pass judgment on others while doing the very same things that they do, you condemn yourself, and you will not escape the judgment, he says. Number two, God will render judgment upon every person according to their deeds. He will even judge the secret things, and he will do it without bias or without partiality. Number three, God has given the Jews his law through Moses, and he has given the Gentiles his law by writing it on our hearts, and so nobody will have an excuse on the day of judgment. And lastly, on that day, only those who are doers of God's law will be justified in his sight. That's where Paul has been 
thus far. This far. Now, if you carefully look at the first 16 verses in chapter 2 that we've covered so far, what you'll notice lurking behind Paul's words is his target audience. Ever since chapter 2 began, he's been subtly talking to the Jews. In verse 9, he made the first distinction between Jew and Greek. At verse 12, he spoke about people who live under the law, the law of Moses. And now as we come to verse 17, he is going to become overt. He is going to specifically identify the Jews by name, and he is about to call them out in a way that some people have described as the most brutally honest assessment that you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. So brace yourself for this. Verse 17. Paul says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Pause. If that's you... He says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And everybody said, ouch, right? Now, understand Paul's point here is not to isolate the Jews as a uniquely defective people. That is not what he is trying to do. His point is to show that the Jews are under the power of sin just like the rest of the world. In fact, just like the pagan Gentiles whom they loathe so much. Again, as we talked about last week, he's putting them on equal footing. All are sinners in need of God's grace. And even their unique possession of God's law, handed down through Moses, does not exclude them from their need to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is ultimately where Paul is aiming. Just because they've received the law, because they are the the national elect of God, does not exclude them from their need to hear and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how does Paul drive this point home? As you see in these verses... He takes everything that the Jews are trusting in other than God, all of the things that they have prided themselves in, and he lays it out before them in this list and says, here is your hypocrisy. What Paul is doing here is describing the self-perceptions of a typically religious man. Hear what I just said there. The self-perception of a typically religious man. Somebody who thinks he's okay with God. But in fact, his self-perception is actually self-delusion. He's not okay with God because he's trusted in things other than God himself. And the danger for us as we read a text like this is to say, oh, those, those foolish first century Jews, how blind they were, right? And get on our high horse and forget that this also applies to us. Fail to realize that we too are guilty at times in trusting in religion, and trusting in religious activity to justify ourselves before God. We, too, tend to run for refuge to all kinds of things other than God himself. So let's remain aware of our own hearts this morning and open to the Spirit's examination of our spiritual condition as we go through this 
so that we don't become deceived like the Jews were in the first century. Is that a deal? That we remain aware of this and sensitive to the Spirit's leading. What is he going to tell you in your heart about your hypocrisy this morning? Now, the natural break in this passage, as I sort of, as I was reading it, I broke at verse 21. That's the natural break point where it says, you therefore, that's the key transition. So let's, we're going to focus more of our time on what comes before that in verses 17 to 20. Let me, uh, in fact, I'm going to put a little bit of an outline on the screen. Verses 17 and 18 are all about how a typical Jew in Paul's day thought about himself in relation to God and in relation to the things of God. And he lists four things in particular in these two verses that Jews took pride in, great pride in these things. Things that a Jew believed gave him superiority over the Gentiles and somehow commended him and justified him before the Lord. Here's the first one. He says, number one, I'm specifically chosen. They prided themselves in the fact that they were the nationally elect of God. Paul writes in verse 17, if you bear the name Jew. Now, historical rabbit trail. Where did the term Jew come from? Because this this can be confusing. We see a number of, of titles and names used of God's chosen people in the scriptures. The first one we see is the term Hebrews. And that was used during the time of Abraham. They were called the Hebrews. That was their particular tribe. And of course, that became the name of their language as well. And then later we see them being called Israelites. What happened? Well, Jacob came along. The Israelites are the descendants of of Jacob. And remember, Jacob was was renamed what? Israel. Good. So after Jacob, after the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they became known as the descendants of Jacob or Israelites. And finally, the term Jew came into usage after the time of the kings, referring to the southern kingdom of Judah. So Jew is simply a shortened form of the name Judah. Remember, it was the people of Judah who went into exile in Babylon, and it was the people of Judah who came back from the exile, came back to the land, remember, rebuilt Jerusalem, and built the second temple. So in Paul's day, and even today, if you go to Israel, the term Jew is now a universal term that is synonymous with this particular ethnic group that's described in Scripture, whether you call them Hebrews or Israelites or Jews. But that name is synonymous with being the chosen people of God. Now, if I were going to sort of create a, uh, uh, an antagonist, a Jewish antagonist, who would take Paul on in this passage, here's what I think he would probably say uh, to this first point about being a Jew. He would say, look, Paul, your gospel sounds nice, and I appreciate your passion for it, But we're Jews. We're already the chosen people of God. So we don't need what you're selling. We don't need this gospel you're selling. We're Jews. Thanks anyway. That's essentially what they would say. And I think Paul would respond in two ways. First of all, he would say, look, your pride in bearing this name Jew is misplaced. And your confidence is based on a misapplication of what it means to be the elect of God. Because if you were truly chosen you would be transformed. And this is an important point for us today. If we're going to call ourselves the elect, if we're chosen, we're transformed. You wouldn't just be a hearer of the law, you'd be a doer as well if you were chosen by God. And if you were a doer, you'd see that evidence of fruit show up in your life. But it may sound like you're self-deceived. And secondly, I think Paul would go through this, this logic, and we're going to see this later, much later in Romans chapter 9, with this great statement, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have what? I've hated. 
Well, how is that possible? Don't they both claim to be Jews? Paul would say it's not enough to be a Jew. Being a Jew doesn't automatically save you. Genesis 25, remember Jacob and Esau, are they both Jews? Absolutely. Both sons of Abraham and Isaac, right? They had the same pedigree, the very same bloodline. Yet what we're going to learn is that one of them is chosen, one of them is rejected. One is blessed and one is cursed. So calling yourself a Jew and having this certain bloodline and pedigree is not a magical get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to the Day of Judgment. And the Jews were, had misunderstood this principle. Now, is there application to us in this? Absolutely. I've talked to many people, men and women over the years, who believe that they're among the elect. They believe that they're saved and secure, even though all the visible fruit of their life points to a totally different conclusion. Well, I'm elect, so I'm fine. They're making poor choices. They're living selfishly. They're resorting to all forms of idolatry. They're avoiding accountability. And they might defend themselves by saying, yeah, well, that may be true, but I come from a long line of believers. I'm good. Or, listen, I've sat under some of the best teaching in this valley, some of the best churches you can find. I've been there. Or, or look, I, many times I've prayed to receive Christ. I'm fine. Or I've had all these spiritual highs in my life in the past. I'm a Christian. But let me adapt Paul's words to anyone who is claiming that. If you bear the name Christian, is there evidence to back it up? Are you committed to being an imperfect but always repentant doer of the gospel? That's the question, right? Because none of us are perfect, but are we committed to being imperfect but always repentant doers and not just hearers of the gospel? If you bear the name Christian. The point is for us is be careful not to rest in what you believe is some inherent privilege that is due you because of some connection to your family or because of some past experience that you had. Examine yourself today so that you don't become self-deceived as the Jews were in Paul's day. Does that make sense? Good. Second thing that they thought of themselves in relation to God is, I have God's law. We're still in verse 17. If you bear, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law. So this is important to understand. When Paul is talking to the Jews, he's talking to people of the book. These aren't atheists, they're not agnostics. These are folks who have received and heard the law through Moses and the prophets, and Paul doesn't quibble with that fact. He's not trying to say that they they haven't had the law. So the Jewish antagonists would say, well, Paul, you don't understand. We don't need your gospel because we have something already. We have the law. And the apostle doesn't say, no, you don't have the law, or, hey, it doesn't matter that you have the law. He doesn't say that. He says, good, you have the law. Praise the Lord. Now do you understand it? You have the law. Praise the Lord. Do you understand what it requires of you? Do you understand its purpose in your life? See, the Jews of Paul's days didn't realize that the law, in fact, condemned them if they didn't meet all of its demands. To the letter, it actually condemned them. That the law was far more comprehensive and exacting than they even realized. It extended way past all the ritualism of their life. It extended to their, to their thoughts, right? And to their attitudes and to the motivations of their heart. And so as they sat there, they were being condemned by the very law that they were claiming to rely upon. And Paul wants to shake them out of that. 
Now, this is where the Christian often gets confused. We think, well, wait, hang on. I'm so confused about this whole law thing. Aren't we supposed to love the law of God? I mean, doesn't the psalmist sing that? How I love your law, O Lord. And the answer is yes, we are to love God's law. Why? Because it's holy and righteous and good and because it expresses the very character of God. But we're always to remember what the purpose of the law was and is. And that is to show us our own unrighteousness. The purpose of the law was and is to drive us to God for a savior, to drive, him, drive us back to him for mercy. It shows us our inability to earn God's favor. And this is what the Jews needed to know about the law. They were relying upon it, but it condemned them because they didn't understand its comprehensive nature nor its demands. The third thing the Jews thought of themselves was this, I uniquely boast in God. Look at the end of verse 17. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. Oh, well, I uniquely delight in God and boast in his name. Is it a good thing, by the way, to boast in God's name? Don't be afraid. Not a trick question. Absolutely. (laughs) I know, right? You never want to answer the preacher. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. No, it's absolutely a great thing to boast in God. The psalmist actually writes... And you probably know this verse, some boast in chariots and some boast in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And again, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. In fact, did you know that when we come here together on Sunday mornings, we are corporately boasting about our God. That's what praises are. We are saying to the world, look at our God. Look at how mighty he is. Look at how good he is. Look at how merciful he is. We are boasting about his character. So boasting in God is a good thing. And again, Paul doesn't quibble with the Jewish understanding that yes, they've been given this unique privilege to delight and boast in the Lord. But again, there's something missing here. There's something missing in their life. And the problem lies in the distinguishing between the knowledge of the one true God and God himself. Between the knowledge of God and God himself. Now, this is very subtle, so so pay close attention to this. You can glory in ideas about God and totally miss God himself. Let me say it again. You can glory in ideas about God without glorying in God himself. And you can know a whole bunch of information about God without truly knowing him. And so Paul is saying to the Jews in his audience, yes, it's good to boast in your God, but do you really know him? You've thought a lot about him. You've gone through all the formal rituals that point to him, but have you really known him? Can you see the application for us today in this? How, how subtle and deceptive this can be. Listen, in, in a conservative Bible teaching church like ours, there are always going to be people that come through here and they will dive headlong into the study of theology and they will be masters of biblical languages and they will get involved in every little nuance of Calvinism and dispensationalism and eschatology and all kinds of things like that and they're going to sound really impressive and you're going to go wow this guy can he can just run circles around me in terms of knowledge and yet sometimes folks like that aren't even saved did you know that don't be fooled you may think that's crazy I've seen it myself some of the elders have as well men who have come through this church as small as we are just like that Men who write theological blogs, men who post on social media constantly and wildly, they're always ready. If you say you have a graph or a chart or something you could show me, 
And yet their lives are an absolute mess. They're critical and uncaring people. They're self-absorbed. They never seem to be able to put down roots in any one church. They don't want accountability. They want to live in isolation with their ideas about God. And I often wonder if they're even saved. Don't be deceived. The point here is you can think a lot about God and you can know a lot about biblical theology and you can still lack a saving personal relationship with God himself. It's a misuse of the knowledge that God has revealed to us. And this is what was happening to the Jews in Paul's day. They knew a lot about God, but did they know him? The fourth thing that he says is this. I know God's will. Look at verse 18 now. And know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. So the Jewish antagonist says this. We don't need your gospel, Paul. We know the will of God because he's given it to us in his law. So we have everything we need to discern what is essential and what is not. I tell you what, why don't you go talk to those filthy, sinning Gentiles? They obviously need to know God's will. We don't. We've got it figured out. We already know these things. The problem is that the Jews of Paul's day were very quick to see the weaknesses and sins of other people, but very slow to discern their own spiritual failures. Again, they may hear the law, read the law, admire the law, and therefore they think they know God's will, but if they're not living it out, what's the point of knowing it? You know people like this? They know the will of God, but they're not living it out. What's the point? So let's be careful, brothers and sisters, that we don't fall into this trap. It's easy in our culture today to point fingers at everybody around us, right? Because this world is going crazy, is it not? Have you been watching the news? Everybody's nuts. Our country's being torn apart. Nobody thinks anymore. Nobody's rational. And we can point to all this stuff and, and we can look at, look at all the heresy that's out there and all these terrible churches and our culture's going straight to hell. And you know what? That may be true. All those things may be true, but if we grow self-righteous and we spend most of our time looking at everybody else and documenting everybody else's sins, we are at danger of losing sight of our own hearts and examining ourselves to see if we are obeying God's will. And that can lead us into hypocrisy. It's dangerous to be pointing fingers in every direction and fail to look in the mirror. So as we step back and look at these two verses, and this is really the, the, the largest part of our time together this morning, here's what we learn. In these four things, Paul is showing the Jews how they've misused the truth. And by misusing the truth, they've actually blinded themselves to the truth. They've deceived themselves, and the truth is not in them. And that has significance for us today. If I were to rewrite these two verses for us, here's what it would look like. If you bear the name Christian and rely upon the Bible and sing praises to God on Sunday mornings and claim to know God's will because the Scriptures instruct you how to live, then examine yourself for any sniff of hypocrisy. I think that's what Paul would say this morning to us as believers. Now, as we look at verses 19 and 20, we get a little bit of a, a shift here from the Jews' relationship with God to the Jews' relationship with other people. So catch this. Here we go back to our outline. Catch this now. We're going to see that theology gone bad 
can lead us to sin against our neighbors. Okay, so two verses about how the Jews thought of themselves in relation to God and now to other people. Bad theology, a misuse of the truth, can cause us to sin against our neighbors. It not only keeps us from personally responding to the gospel, it leads to, listen to this, sinful pride and superiority towards the people around us. Oh, I've arrived. I've got it figured out. I've got my whole theological system all wound tighter than you can imagine. You fools. Someday you'll catch up to me. You say, Jeff, I would, I would never say that. You can say it in your heart. Oh, yeah. We're all capable of doing that. The result of this is we don't love our neighbor as we should. We don't serve our neighbor as we should. We don't evangelize our neighbor. And sometimes even worse, wait for it, we turn our neighbor away from the truth by our attitude, by our pride. So let's look at verses 19 and 20. And I'll start with the prefix from verse 17. But if you, verse 19, are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You can see what Paul's doing here, right? He's using really what I would call a healthy dose of sarcasm and and rhetoric to drive his point home. He's essentially saying, look, so you, Jews, you're confident in this, right? That you are spiritual guides, that you have been a light, that you are the correctors and the teachers. You're confident in this, really? Are you sure? How confident is your confidence? What's interesting about his tactic here is Paul realizes that the Jews were called to be these things. You know this, right? They were called by God to be these things. In a world of darkness, they were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to spread the salvation of Yahweh across the earth. That was their calling. The prophets confirm it. They were called to be a blessing to the Gentiles. The the people that lived outside the covenant, who didn't know Yahweh. Be a blessing to them. Be a light to them. That was their original calling. But what is Paul getting at here? Instead of fulfilling that calling, the Jews had taken the law, this precious thing, and twisted it so that it became an object of spiritual pride. They had mangled it up. And now spiritually and morally, they saw themselves as superior And then rather than showing compassion to their harvest field, the people they're supposed to talk about Yahweh to, instead of compassion, now they were looking down at them and saying, these filthy Gentiles are unworthy of God's law. Spiritual pride. And so Paul's taking aim at that. He wants them to see that their their mission that they've been given to the lost has failed that they have chosen security and comfort over obedience. They've lacked humility. They've lacked grace. They've lacked a desire to serve. They've lacked a desire to love. And if they really were operating from the law, they wouldn't have the spiritual pride. If they really were operating from the knowledge and truth of God's law, they would see their hearts and they would repent. And they would recommit themselves to doing the very things that Paul lists here. Guiding others, being a light, teaching and correcting. And so, yes, there's more application for us here. Again, it's easy for people like us. We have been given so much. We have so many spiritual advantages here in America, don't we? We have so many advantages. To live in a culture that's circling the drain, we can let pride set in like we're so high and mighty. 
These, these silly fools out there, if only they knew what I, would, what I know. To be prideful. We, we can engage in the debates of the day and walk away feeling pretty good about ourselves, can't we? Because we've got it figured out. And we can get angry at the very people in our harvest field that we're called to love and to reach. Anger instead of compassion. So in the midst of pointing fingers at the sins of others, think about it. How easy is it to get derailed in the mission that we've been given? Guard your heart carefully in this. Let's quickly look at verses 21 to 23. Here's where Paul's going to really spring the trap and expose the hypocrisy of Jewish self-righteousness. Look at verse 21. Oh, is this heavy so far? I said it last week, man, it's Romans. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Oh, okay, Paul says, oh, oh, you, you teach her. Teach yourself, you hypocrite. Essentially what he's saying. Oh, you're a preacher now. Practice what you preach then. Don't point fingers at others if you're not leading by example. You teacher, you corrector, you preacher, you hypocrite. I want you to imagine the response that this letter got in Rome for just a second. If you were a Jew living in Rome, whether you were a Jew who trusted in Christ or a Jew who was hanging around and listening to this this message, how would you have responded to this? I'm guessing this was pretty sobering. That the historical bite of this rebuke from Paul would have been very difficult for them to hear. But really, if you think about it, is it really anything new? Didn't, didn't Jesus talk about the very same thing when he was on the earth? Here's what he said. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. Nothing had changed between the time of Jesus And the time Paul wrote this letter to the Roman church, the Jews still reeked of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. If you present yourself as a person who relies on God and trusts in his law, and if you go so far as to teach others about what it says, and you encourage them that they should live in harmony with this law, then how is it that you yourself don't practice it? I'm sure I don't have to point out again the application for us today because, again, we live in morally conflicted times. Preaching at people is easy, isn't it? We can spend all day long preaching at people. But practicing what you preach and being an example and showing other people what it looks like to be a Christian, that's a much harder task, is it not? Before we move on, take a second look at verse 23 because this, this is an ouch. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Why is that such an ouch? Because back in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul had said this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Now, if a Jew had been listening to that, he'd say, Yep, that's so true of the Gentiles. Right? And now it's like, boom. You dishonor God as well when you continually break his law. Again, Paul's putting them on equal footing. He's saying, you're on the same moral level as the very people you look down your nose at. The very people that you loathe rather than reach. 
And that transitions us into the final verse, which is another bombshell that's connected to this idea of dishonoring God. Verse 24, how does hypocrisy affect our witness to the world? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just as it is written. Now, what does that mean? Just as is it written means that there was some understood principle that connected back to the Old Testament that Paul was referring to. And it comes from Isaiah 52.5, where God says, My name is continually blasphemed all day long. And it's a reference back to the 6th century B.C. when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were being carted off into exile. And because of this devastating loss, the name of Yahweh was being mocked across the whole ancient Near East. And that was typical of ancient Near East thinking. Back then they had a very simple cause and effect understanding of the world. They had a a saying that was this, a people are like their, their God. And so if a people is destroyed in battle and taken into exile, well, guess what? Their God must be pretty weak. Now, God, we know God was punishing Judah for their sins. He sent them in his sovereignty into exile. But the people of the ancient Near East and the Gentile nations, they blasphemed God's name because of it. They mocked the name of Yahweh. They said, he's not a mighty God. And God says, my name is blasphemed because of you, because of your sin. The witness of Yahweh's greatness was diminished in that day and in Paul's day because of law-breaking. 600 years later after that event, the Jews in Paul's day who were reading this, they understood exactly what he was talking about. They understood the rebuke. In essence, Paul was saying, you guys are no better than your ancestors who were taken into exile to Babylon. No better. Get off your high horse. You may have your land back, you may have rebuilt your temple, but because of your spiritual failures, you are following in their footsteps. God's name is still being mocked because of you. Friends, this is the effect of hypocrisy. And, and, and you know as well as I do that it, it affects the church as well, does it not? We've all felt this, right? You, you go to share your faith and they say, yeah, I know a couple Christians, Psh. I've seen their lives. What's different about your God? When professing believers claim to love God in his word, but they live in contradiction to their profession of faith, they become the greatest hindrance to evangelism. God's name is blasphemed. Our hypocrisy allows non-believers to feel comfortable to make fun of God. Did you hear me? Our hypocrisy allows non-believers to feel comfortable making fun of our God. Our hypocrisy gives them every excuse that they want and need to say, I don't need the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here. It was true back then, it's true today. So these eight verses are rough, aren't they? Good news is there's more to come next Sunday. The next five verses, as we finish chapter 2 next Sunday, Paul's in the same vein of thinking, but he's going to move from the moral law to the ceremonial law. So there's a lot to learn next week. But let me, let me just leave you with some uplifting news. 
And I know it may seem at this point that Paul's just lingering on the negative, right? We've been in Romans a while, still more of the same. It feels like he's just swinging a giant hammer at everybody. And he is. But there's an important reason for it. He's using the bad news. I know we talked about this on the front end. He's using the bad news to lay a foundation for what? For the good news. He's heading towards chapter 3, verse 21, where he's going to say, but, man, buts in scripture are so important. All this bad news, two plus chapters of it, but now, he's going to write, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Praise him for that. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And friends, you have to hear me now. Ultimately, this is Paul's heart for his people. It's not just to swing a hammer at him. But he wants to use vivid language to get their attention, to show them their failures so that they will turn and repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he's going here. As for us in the church today, let me come back to where I started. And I'll just acknowledge it. We're all hypocrites. Welcome to the club. We should start a club. T-shirts. We're all hypocrites to some extent or another. We all fall short of glorifying God as as we should. We all fall short of honoring him as he deserves. That's where we are this morning, together, collectively, guilty as charged. And our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is in his righteousness imputed to us and in the transforming power that he gives us by his spirit to grow us so that we can then glorify him more and more each day in a progressive maturing. That's our only hope. Because of the cross, we have a friend in Jesus that we can run to when we fall into hypocrisy. The answer to hypocrisy in our lives is not just do better. Did you know that? That's not the answer. If, if, if you've been coming to to, to Oak Hill for the last few weeks, and you, well, here's what I've heard. We just got to do better. That is not the advice that Paul would give you. That is a doomed, failed strategy. It's not just do better. When we sense hypocrisy in our lives, we don't just try harder. We don't just hide. We don't just wear a mask. We don't try to lessen the significance of our sin. We don't shift the blame. We don't make excuses for it. Because of the cross, we simply flee to Jesus. That's it. And we find refuge there. That's where we meet our high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who longs to restore us and to give us the strength that we need to get up again and to carry on. That's the promise we've been given in Scripture. And that's the answer to hypocrisy. It's Jesus. It always has been. It always will be. May we here at Oak Hill Continue to be humble and to resist self-righteousness. May our praises be authentic because we know God, not about God. May we be cautious about pointing fingers at the culture, making ourselves angry instead of being compassionate for those in our harvest field. May we be known as doers of of the gospel, not hypocritical preachers. And may we represent our God well. May we by our lives bring him honor and glory. Amen? Amen.